episode nine of Mixtape Memories. <laughs> and this is not our ASMR episode, but we thought we'd tease you. <laughs> you know, it's a little quiet and soft. <laughs> yes. Although we are doing something a little different this time. We're kind of focusing on left field acts that kind of fall outside of the mainstream. Um, but we're not really limiting it. So I feel like we're covering experimental space rock, some shoegaze. Anything that doesn't fit the typical kind of verse, chorus, verse, I don't know, straightforward three and a half minute track. No? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun because I feel like both of us have uh, relationships with music that is um, a little uh, outside of the the bubble or the, you know, what what's buzzy at the moment. So, um, yeah, I think um, for me, that kind of started also like most things in college um when i kind of discovered on college radio songs that were randomly nine minutes long and and kind of meandered a bit and i kind of fell in love with that and uh Mm. yeah when did you kind of discover music that was a little you know left of center so to speak uh i mean i think that probably started with the Mm mixtapes like in the 90s but as far as like going I think maybe like 2003 or 2004, like as far as like going to see, like if I was seeing it live. And I think a lot of times like that kind of stuff, it's easy to see live because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you don't notice like the, you know, the 15, 16 minute track. Yeah. Because you're kind of on a journey with the band. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, and it's a lot of like, yeah, head thrashing and mm-hmm. <laughs> swaying yeah shoegazing as as you know <laughs> of course of course literally so yeah that's probably like when but um yeah i don't know um uh, probably more in the 2000s yeah i think for me it's the very late 90s early 2000s when i was really into this kind of stuff um and yeah, I think for me, probably the first time I saw one of the bands that maybe fits into this bubble was when I saw Sigaros in college and they played the 930 Club in D.C., which I feel like most things lead back to me to 930 Club or Black Hat in D.C. In, during my college years. And uh, they were touring, I think it was just before the second album, parentheses, came out, or the second album in terms of like, uh, you know, proper releases. And it was just unbelievable. I remember I went with my friends and, you know, our jaws were on the ground and the lights went up and we just we were stunned for a few minutes. And I think that's what's so great about seeing um, some of these acts live. It just kind of, it takes you somewhere that maybe seeing, you know, a band like, let's say the Strokes from around the same time, maybe didn't. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. You know? It's different. It was Mm -hmm. a lot. Well, you know, especially that band, I would think, even though I didn't really go to see them live. I mean, I've heard their songs here and there, but you don't actually know what they're singing, right? Uh, no, you have no clue. Mm. You know, I mean, there are translations, but they're kind of loose, and it almost is better if you don't know. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, because you're just kind of reading, you know, the mood of the music. Yeah, than anything yeah. else. So, and I think a lot of stuff from this time too, at least in terms of the post rock genre or whatever you want to call it, a lot of it did not have any lyrics. So you really went on the journey and kind of made your own interpretation of what was going on or what the subtext was yeah you know yeah they're always like these epic sprawls of music Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. that like super dark and moody you know so it's a whole other genre 
Uh, who are some of your favorite acts from from that time and maybe to this day from that kind of maybe fall into this grouping? I did like Mono was a band mm-hmm, I was going to mm-hmm. reference. And um, just in terms of like, you know, being kind of that instrumental dark rock. And uh, I remember listening, particularly that album, uh, One Step More and You Die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's the one I remember the most. Mm-hmm. And like that left like a big impression on me. And I kind of became obsessed with them at that point. Mm-hmm. Would go see them live. Like you know, whenever they were in town. What about you? I've seen I've seen Mono live once, and it was incredible. I actually went because the opener was someone I was interested in seeing. I don't remember who it was, but I stayed for Mono, and I was blown away by Mono. Yeah, they were incredible. In terms of other acts that maybe I was a big fan of, and some of these to this day, some of these not as much. I would say the ones that I'm still a fan of. I still love Spiritualized, who uh, it's fronted by Jace Baseman slash Jason Pierce, who was in Spaceman Three. And then started spiritualized in the early 90s. Um, and they put out so many incredible albums. Of course, probably the most monumental and the breakthrough one was uh, Ladies and Gentlemen Were Floating in Space from, I think, 97. Um, and I've seen them perform that album in its entirety at Radio City uh, and elsewhere, too. But um, they're they're incredible. In fact, I just saw them very recently uh, here in Brooklyn. And that's a band pretty much every time they're performing local I'll, I'll go and, and it's really moving and these days they're performing with um uh background singers and kind of a mini orchestra depending on the venue and it's it's really it's moving um and another band that uh i love from that maybe falls into this episode's category is mogwai um i've been a fan of mogwai since college um for those who don't know it's a, a scottish post-rock experimental act um that really kind of they're at the forefront of this whole thing i feel um and they released so many of their albums are great but i would say my two favorites were the ones that were put out in the early 2000s um notably rock action and um happy songs for happy people you know when i was researching this episode i was thinking so many of these bands that we love released album like albums where the titles are like bananas and also kind of legendary (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what that's about but i guess maybe it goes along with the it was part of their self-expression probably yeah yeah it's like another extent well they didn't you know they didn't have much in the way of lyrics yeah then i guess the title has to make a statement titles or the album title (laughs) yeah mogwai was also good with the out with the song titles as well but you know quickly looking over like some of the notes i jotted down like uh, in terms of albums that i i loved from that time or maybe to this day some of them that I, I i can't get over these album titles like godspeed you black amber which alone is a great band name but uh of course probably their most iconic release is lift your skinny fist like antennas to heaven i mean come on that's pretty good um i actually saw them perform for the very first time um last summer and it was a pretty great outdoor big outdoor show um explosions in the sky also fall into that post-rock category and while for some reason their fan base got kind of douchey i don't know what that's about uh their earlier releases i was a fan of and they released one called the earth is not a cold dead place which is quite (laughs) the title um matmos who's um they're a couple based out of baltimore that's been around for 25 years um i actually had the the fortune of working with them on an album a few years back uh that they released where every sound on the album was generated from uh a uh, um, sound or some sort of um 
I don't know, movement from a washing machine. It was called Ultimate Care 2, <laughs> which that was oh cool. All of their releases have like different themes. So like they'll do one album where it's like all liposuction stuff. And then all stuff that's based out of like the most recent album is all these songs from various different kinds of plastics. So I don't know, I think that's oh, cool. That's pretty wild. And then anyway, the album I was a fan of back in the day that probably uh, kind of drew me in was called The Rose Has Teeth in the Mouth of the Beast. <laughs> pretty pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see you also have M83. Yeah. Um, they had that one album that was like very like, what was it? John Hughes inspired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Saturdays equals you. Yeah. yeah. I really like that album. I think that was probably for me the moment where they were um, at their most poppy without it becoming a mm-hmm. little oversaturated. Yeah. Which maybe it kind of happened after that release. Yeah. Um, definitely. But yeah, I don't know. They kind of lost the cool factor, but I, I did enjoy them for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, that was a good summer album for a little bit. Yeah, totally. A lot of these are also good stoner albums, I feel. Yeah. No? Kind of goes hand in hand a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Spacey, stony. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also was a fan of Shushu uh, for a bit, who's uh, also Baltimore-based, or at least originally. And it's fronted by Jamie Stewart um, and kind of a rotating cast of folks and he does all sorts of things. I mean, I think every release is very different from one another, so it's hard to p- kind of put him into a category, which I guess is why he maybe fits into this experimental episode. But, you know, he's he's openly queer. Some of the songs are more punk. Some are more poppy. Uh, some are more sad. Um, I don't know. There's a lot. So I feel like there's a lot to to bite into. And he pretty much releases something every year or two. So I want to say to the, to date, he has like 14 or 15 albums. Mm. So um, very prolific. Do you think yeah. this is like a genre that's like mostly male dominated? Too? I was thinking that when I was researching for today. Um, I can't. There are very few uh, women fronted uh, bands in this field. Yeah. 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 Although we're going to visit one later. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think that's fair to say, and I mean, kind of similar to an episode we recently recorded around emo. It oh, seems yeah. like it was a bit of a boys' club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, both genres, I guess, also kind of have like their like dynamics too, kind of soft and loud mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. kind of dynamics. Yeah, um, yeah. I would say that's a good point. I think that's one similarity that maybe people wouldn't think of off the top of their head is kind of in both of these genres. I guess the point of the the music, the album or the song, depending, is kind of that slow build Mm -hmm. and then that peak Mm -hmm. and everything kind of explodes and then the slow fade down. Yeah, the release. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost sexual in a way. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I also was a fan of uh, this band Air who had a moment and then Mm. I feel kind of fizzled, but I was interning at Astroworks Records when I was 19, 20, 21. and Moon Safari was put out. And then also the soundtrack to Virgin Suicides. Oh, yeah. And they were on that. Um, and I got to work briefly with them. I mean, not directly, but in the marketing department in the, as an intern. And um, I was really into that Moon Safari album. And I feel like they went in their own direction for a bit. Yeah. Um, some of it was in French. Some was in English. It was kind of spacey. It was kind of odd. Um, the videos were a little random. Um, and I kind of dug it. Yeah, they yeah. were cool. yeah. Uh, also, I was going to mention Animal Collective, who obviously became more of a, a, a staple, a household name in indie culture. But I feel like some of those earlier releases, like Sung Tongs and Feels, um, 
when they maybe were still kind of getting into their groove. I like a lot of that stuff. Some of it's frantic and some of it is softer. And um, I don't know. I, I really was a big fan of Feels. I remember actually discovering that album when I was uh, going to other music, which is no longer, but was in uh, the East Village. And, you know, that was like one of their showcased albums. Yeah. I feel, did you discover stuff at other music? Yeah. You yeah. know, it definitely was like one of those places you go to just to see what's new and what's out. There's not much of that anymore like no. where, where do people go these days you know i can't think of any place except maybe in new york except maybe rough trade but um where you can put on headphones and really discover something and get into that universe for right. a bit yeah it's kind of few and far between as far as like record stores that kind of are also curators in mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. um but that's just because like the record store is dying like the brick and mortar yeah kind of record store um was like another era (laughs) it was another era and i feel like that that is very interesting as it relates to this kind of music because with a lot of the music we're discussing in this episode it's not something you could just kind of press play on spotify and and groove along to you Mm -hmm. kind of have to spend time with it and i feel like at a record store back in the day you could zone out for an hour no one's going to bother you yeah and you could really hop in but now it's a different listening experience, you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess you, you know, what do people do these days? Like, listen to it on Spotify mm-hmm. or, like, YouTube? <laughs> yeah. And also, people don't have the attention span, you know? I mean, myself included, but... Um, yeah. It's, yeah, the whole process is very different these days. It's true. You know? Yeah, even for, like, um, when I'm preparing for, like, our repeat skips, it's like... Uh, yeah, it's hard to just sit and like listen to a whole album for like an hour. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it was a lot easier when, at least for me on cassette, like when, you know, it was such a process to fast forward and get to the next track without over, over oh, yeah, jumping. Totally. You just you were kind of forced to listen to it straight through. I kind of like that. Yeah. You know, yeah, you had no idea. And, and it was split in two. So yeah. it would go by a little faster. Also, sometimes for me, I'd forget what the next track was after I listened to track three. So it almost came as a surprise, even though I knew it. You know? (laughs) (laughs) You know? (laughs) Speaking of spiritualized, uh, I've seen them many times through the years. And I remember I saw them about 10, 11 years ago. They headlined the Apollo Theater. And I was with a couple friends and... The show ended. My friend was insistent on on meeting uh, the band, saying hi, because she had met them before in Europe. And uh, anyway, I was like, well, I don't we're at the Apollo Theater. It's not like I could just get backstage. And she's like, well, let's try. So I recall we went to the Apollo Theater and um, just after, you know, after the show ended, we nonchalantly just walked up to the backstage area thinking we were going to get kicked out. And the security guard, of course, approached us and was like, where do you think you're going? And we didn't have any special badge or anything. And and she, we tried to, you know, uh, bullshit our way into the backstage area. And she goes, you're going the wrong way. You got to go this way. So I thought that was kind of funny <laughs> that she could tell that we weren't supposed to be there. But at the same time, she had our back. And she was just like, well, this is actually the way in. And then we got to spend some time with the band. And, and I thought that was cool. So I want to say kudos to that very sweet security guard at Apollo Theater who kind of made our night. Yeah, kudos. <laughs> that never happens. No. <laughs> <laughs>
That's cool. The band was just like cool with you being there. Yeah, I think that they were high out of their mind. <laughs> In fact, I'm pretty sure of it. You're like, we probably know these people. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing was, my friend, uh, they kind of sort of knew maybe, but I think also they were really high. And I know that they were high because for some reason I had um, Jay Spaceman sign my ticket stub because that's all I had on me. And he signed it. He wanted to put the the year and the date for some reason and he asked me not just what year it was or what month it was but what day it was he knew nothing <laughs> he's like, like how is this possible <laughs> awesome that's perfect yeah <laughs> so yeah one of a repeat skips are actually like you know has a female front person maybe both of them actually oh, they have a female singer yeah 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 that's true we female saved the best for male. last yes <laughs> actually yeah <laughs> which was also a thing that yes like yes. bands that would have like male and female vocalists mm-hmm. but i guess we could start with blonde redhead yeah you know they were definitely on a more experimental front not really like many like any bands really i mm-hmm. think that sound like them mm-hmm. uh, and they've definitely evolved over the years for me like the kind of major blonde redhead album was melody of certain damaged lemons mm-hmm. from 2000 mm-hmm. which is yeah pretty old but uh i just remember listening to them and being like what is this yeah <laughs> it's so strange but i love it dark i always loved uh her vocals and i also loved that they were always in their own avenue and there was something about their sound that i think was very signature i don't know mm. if it was the vocal stylings or if it was like the the moody element of the, the music or something about it i could i quickly identify that's a blonde redhead song yeah you i know? mean she was almost like a, a weird japanese version of bjork or something uh-huh, like uh-huh. her vocals and um uh, kazoo i guess and then um the other vocalist was one part of a twin. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Simone and Amadeo. Amadeo was the other vocalist, and he would do, like, the, the male vocals. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that album kind of just blew my mind a bit, and um, and I, I think I, like, discovered it later on, like, way a little bit after it came out. And, um, yeah, I remember... Uh, <laughs> I did a really silly review of it on uh, Pop Matters because I think they were doing a series that was kind of like, you know, more like I- a feature features on like iconic albums that influence people. Mm-hmm. So that was the album that I chose was that because I was like super into Blonde Redhead at the time. And, mm. um, I can read maybe a part of it. And by the way, Pop Matters is still going strong. One of the few that survived the test of time. It's true, actually. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Yeah. Like, it kind of survived beyond Pitchfork as far as, like, indie-spirited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's still kind of going strong there. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so my review is still up there. <laughs> but when I reread it now, it sounds so silly. Well, all of our writing from back then. <laughs> yeah. But what did you say? Uh, yeah, so I was uh, trying to describe uh, describe the song in particular and I said the song reminds of times when one first wakes up in the morning <laughs> the sun <laughs> is shining through the blinds onto your face and you have nothing on your mind but as you begin to lie in bed thoughts and worries start seeping into your brain and inevitably they overtake the quiet beginning <laughs> of your day and you're left with an overload of thoughts <laughs> I mean <laughs> 
I I love it. I think I I kind of get it, and I think it also perfectly describes the track. So it works yeah. for me, you know. <laughs> Uh, what was your favorite track and what was your skip track? Actually, that track was my favorite from In that particular? release. Yeah, 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 I love that song. So it's hard not to love that song. Yeah, it's such a good one. I feel like with with so many of the experimental slash shoegaze slash everything in in this bubble releases, a lot of it, a lot of the songs flow into one another. You know, I think on. I forgot if it was episode two or three, we we were diving into uh, My Bloody Valentine, Loveless. And I feel like that's one that obviously also could fit into this. But um, everything kind of, I don't know. I feel like a lot of these bands did a very good job at melding everything together. So there wasn't the, like the one standout track that seemed yeah. um, either better than the rest or, you know, uh, conversely, like it didn't really fit, yeah. you know? Um, I feel like most of these bands... Uh, they were going for the the whole mood of the whole release, and yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was like one large story versus yeah. like you know separate stories that didn't have anything to do with each other. Yeah. So I agree with that. Yeah, that was my favorite track too. What was your skip? My skip was um, equally damaged, which uh, is the opener. I think it's just like forty seconds or so. Mm-hmm. I, in general, I'm not a fan of of um, like teaser slash intro kind of tracks or or songs that are a minute or under I, I, don't, I just feel like it's unnecessary just kind of build it into the following track yeah which is why a lot of times on a release when they have a lot of interludes or i don't know preludes um you know like for example the 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 solange album um a seat at the table i think there are like seven or eight of those interludes that are all 20 or 30 seconds. And I'm just like, I don't, I understand it, it builds upon the release, but um, I'm not a fan of that in general. I'd rather have 10 or 12 songs that are, you know, full, fuller songs. Yeah. That's just my thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I suspect that maybe they broke it up like that. So that that one song could be more of a single and mm-hmm. it wouldn't have like that long intro to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I like the order of it, though, even though, you know, whether you could debate whether you like it as a separate track or not. But like, I do like how it sets it up very like, you know, very peaceful kind of opening track. And then it kind of goes into a little bit more moodier mm-hmm. kind of vibe. Um, I, I chose Skip to skip that track Mother because I felt like even though this is an album, as a whole, everything goes together. That one stood out a little bit for me as far as, like, it's a little bit just, like, louder mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um, and uh, Which I don't mind, but as, it's as, as a whole, maybe, you know, you probably, you know, wouldn't find it relaxing. Got it. To, Got it. To, That's to fair. To that in the in the scheme of the whole album. I love this album, but I have to admit, I also really love um, the follow-up, Misery is a Butterfly. Yes. I feel like that's when I it all clicked for me. I mean, I enjoyed this album as well, but I feel like when Misery is a Butterfly came out, I fully was like, okay, Blonde Redhead is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That was way more like a, a melodic album and a little bit more... Maybe yeah, it was more accessible for me. Yeah. yeah. Like you could sing along to yeah. a lot of the songs. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed that release. Yeah. I feel like they also did some sort of anniversary tour around that album a few years back. Oh, Maybe yeah? it was 10. Probably. Something like that. Yeah. They're definitely back. I mean, like, in, you know, they're still playing around and stuff. That album, Misery, came out a few years later. 
But apparently it's because she, like, had some kind of, like, accident, like, riding a horse or something, equestrian accident. See, I don't remember this. I mean, I, I'm sure it's true. I just, I don't know. For yeah. some reason, I my memory is, which is kind of uh, ironic having this as our podcast title. My memory sometimes fades <laughs> in and out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. That was still like, you know, Misery is a Butterfly. Like the title track was good, but it was also interesting how the sound changed and shifted from the, the, the melody. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what that is. It's just like the next progression of a band. Because, mm-hmm. I don't know. Their sound definitely got like fuller, mm-hmm. you know, in the subsequent albums. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, apparently it's, you know, that whole album was inspired by her horse accident. I would have never realized that, actually. <laughs> I think also for me, when I listen to some of the stuff that falls into this bigger category, I'm not paying as much attention to the lyrics, if there are any, mm-hmm. uh, because it's more about the mood, as we were saying. So um, I might have not even realized that maybe she was referencing some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely like, usually it's more like the way she sings songs more than what she's singing, mm-hmm. per se, the album um but yeah like the first track kind of references it if you really like look at the lyrics elephant woman and then the closing track equus equus yeah yeah <laughs> a little more literal yeah yeah so but um i'm gonna have to revisit that uh that music video yeah i don't know why i can't remember <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> too many shows too many i don't know yeah they probably didn't even make a big deal of it you know yeah yeah at the time like like some bands would it was probably just like oh yeah this is the aside well 2004 i'm trying to think youtube was obviously a thing by then right 15 maybe it was just starting out yeah Yeah. i think it was just starting out i think people were still kind of premiering their you know videos on like online websites yeah and uh through some other sort of embed yeah, source. Yeah, or MTV or something yeah, like yeah. that. Or MTVU. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I feel like maybe a couple videos from that particular year or two gap might have gotten kind of sort of lost before YouTube. I don't mm, know. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, and locally, we had like New York Noise. Yes. But, New York Noise was great. You know. Yeah. You had to kind of be in the know. Yeah. Be fun to revisit some episodes of that oh, uh, yeah. if they're archived somewhere. Yeah, I yeah. wonder. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to ask Shirley. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other album was Slow Dive. Yeah. Suvlaki. Yeah, also an iconic uh, album from uh, from the early '90s and uh, this whole shoegazy kind of movement. See, for me, this is another album where I feel like I listen to it in, in one. Um, yeah. So it's a little a little challenging to divide it between like faves and unfaves. Um, do you yeah. feel the same? Yeah. And <laughs> although I do feel like, you know, the the more known tracks are like in the first half of the album mm-hmm. and then um, lesser because there are like definite hits from it. Like Allison, mm-hmm. the, the first track is like. I feel like probably on like so many mixtapes. Yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> you know, if you were to like try to pick a single, that might be one of them. Mm-hmm. Forty days. Yeah. You know. Um, although when I was re-listening to this album, I picked Machine Gun as my mm. favorite. My repeat. Um, there's just something like kind of like really sweet and um, but kind of futuristic a little bit with the robotic. 
you know, kind of play um, in the song. And um, but then I wanted to skip Dagger, the last song. OK. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's just kind of like whatever song for me. You saw them live recently. We, we mentioned it in an earlier episode, but yes, w- it was incredible, right? It was incredible. I had never seen them sl- like slow dive as a band live before. So that was kind of the the best thing ever <laughs> because they still sound really good. Oh, good. <laughs> so and I've seen Neil Halstead like solo before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that he was incredible. And of course, like Mojave 3 when mm-hmm. they would perform it's kind of like seeing you know some other version of slow dive or something uh-huh. but um yeah no it's it's nice when like they can still sing you know many many years later and that's not the case with a lot of these by not the way. everybody can yeah, yeah. they they still sound really really good oh like, good it's amazing just like the album um was it one of those things that came as a surprise that they were kind of back and touring again I mean, I don't know how the re- their relationship was. I don't I'm not. Yeah. Like, because I think they actually like reunited like a few years earlier, like in 2014. OK. Um, kind of when a lot of shoegaze bands were kind of reuniting, like Ride and, mm-hmm. you know, some other, you know, My, My Bloody Valentine and all that kind of stuff. But like, um, so I think they were just kind of like part of that trend of that era, 90s shoegaze mm-hmm. reuniting and whatever. But um so I don't think it was a surprise, but it was the one that I was more excited about out of all of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think they're one of my more favorite shoegaze acts. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I was reading about this album and it was kind of weird that like the inspiration for the title, Suvlaki. <laughs> like, this uh, threw me. I had no idea. <laughs> and who knows if this is true, but according to Wikipedia... <laughs> Um, it said it was inspired by a Jerky Boys like skit where like somebody calls like a hotel manager and um, tells them that trying to get them to have sex with like their wife or something. And then uh, the guy says some uh, the hotel manager says that they're Greek or something. And then the guys are like, my wife loves that Greek shit. She'll suck you like souvlaki. <laughs> It just, it so doesn't fit with what I would think. No, but... it doesn't fit at all. Like, you're like, that's the inspiration? And then the whole vibe of the album is so not like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just like, that is just some random shit. Like, maybe they were stoned and thought that was really funny. Yeah, that's very possible. <laughs> also, Jerky Boys were, like, the thing, I guess. I guess. In, like, 92. 90- Two ninety three. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so, I was never into that, but no. like, yeah, they were a thing, I suppose. What was your? Oh, so I I would repeat Allison. I mean, you. Uh, that's just such a great track. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Say, I mean, that track is just so great, and um, I would probably skip. Uh, similarly to uh, to the Blonde Redhead album that we were discussing, um, I would skip Here She Comes just because I feel like. It's another short, pretty uh, track, but maybe is a little unnecessary. I don't know. Um, Like I said, I just kind of like a a fuller picture in each song. And I hate these little fragmented things. That's just me. It's like a it's a personal thing. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, this album also like 
when it first came out in 94, like, apparently didn't get, like, great reviews, mm-hmm. which is surprising because now it's, like, such a seminal mm-hmm. album. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some would say, like, a premiere, like, shoegaze album. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny because, like, yeah, they would get, like, these, like, reviews that would say it's, like, unfulfilling. <laughs> which is, like, I'm just, like, how is this album unfulfilling? It was kind of amazing, actually. Um, or, like, soulless. Someone would call it soulless. Oh, wow. Which is, like, I just can't see that. Like, you know, I don't know how to explain how, what, like, what is the perspective that happens where it starts off as like a soulless album, but now it's like one of the major examples of shoegaze? I feel like that happens a fair deal, though, where something will get initially reviewed poorly, mm-hmm. um, you know, way, way back. And then when people revisit, they enjoy it, you know? Oh, actually, it reminds me, actually, like, you know how they explained it was that um, bands like Oasis and Blur were getting popular mm-hmm. around then. So instead of the Brits being into like this kind of chill shoegaze um, sound, they were like comparing everything to that kind of Brit pop sound. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, oh, that's the shoegaze is like the old sound. Right. And this is like the new hot British sound. So yeah. I think like, you know, those that's what they were comparing it to, which is like, of course, then you'd see. Yeah, it's, it's an unfair comparison. Um, I mean, two different ballparks entirely. Totally. You know? I mean, also, I feel like grunge was pretty much nearing its end by 94. Yeah. So that was also a factor, I guess. But I think it's also maybe one of those things that people didn't know how to really digest the album. Mm. And, you know, sometimes if, you know, if you're given an album and you have to review it within a week and a half, I think for like an album like this or a lot of these kind of albums, you need a little more time to really soak it in and get a good grasp for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's kind of like, what do they call those? Like sleepers? Yeah. Like a sleeper. Yeah. You gotta spend some time with it and then it kind of grows on you. Um, This is a bit unrelated, but made me think of like a a review that, uh, (laughs) that maybe people would regret writing or looking at way back. I remember in... After Destiny's Child broke up and Beyonce went solo, the Times wrote a feature reviewing her debut album. And the the header of the piece said, um, Beyonce solo. She's no Ashanti. No way. (laughs) And I just feel like, wow, wow. Um, And if you just look at, obviously, uh, you know, the success level in 2019 between the two acts over the last two decades, um, it's funny. But uh, I thought that was kind of uh, like maybe you were a little hasty to write that or or just kind of mean spirited. I don't know. (laughs) It just shows you that like over time perspective can change. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Slow dive. There are no oasis. There are no exactly. <laughs> I'm sure there was a review like that in like whatever the you know oh my the alt enemy was. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. now I would I would say that they're they're more. Yeah. Way better than Oasis, but I'm sure tons of people would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I'll always hold those first two Oasis albums close to my heart, but like everything else could go, you know, forever, <laughs> forever, forever. All right. Well, that was episode nine, our kind of left field episode. Woo. Yay. Uh, thanks for sticking with us and stay tuned for our season finale. Yes. Yay. I can't believe it. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.